Welcome back, Run Your Mouth Podcast. I'm back in the apartment, but go check out the Shedcast. We totally Shedcasted. Uh, it is reopened for business. Maybe we'll have a uh, non-reopening opening ceremony with a ribbon. We were thinking about just throwing more ribbon cutting ceremonies, just showing up to places with ribbons. You know, gas stations been open for the last 10 years. Just throw more ribbon cutting ceremonies. It's a good time. You throw up the ribbon, you get the big thing of scissors. Uh, you get uh, women to dress up real slutty and hot. You get your dick sucked afterwards. There's no, never been a guy at a ribbon cutting ceremony ever. If you go there and you're the guy who cuts the scissors, you get that big honor, you're getting your dick sucked. So that's going to be my strategy once the world reopens in uh, 2022 or something. When, you know, they will actually, we're going to find out that these vaccines don't really work. And then we're going to like shut down again. But like sometime in 2023, when everyone else is kind of sick of the dating apps, I'm going to start a business where I just keep throwing ribbon cutting ceremonies and uh, I'll get, I'm going to get so much puss. It's going to be a great time. But anyways, let's start our episode. Uh, sponsors. Yeah, that's a good thing to shout out right at the top while we got this celebration going, while we're talking about ribbon cutting ceremonies. Firstly, run your mouth coffee. They got some uh, delicious coffee. They got some exotic flavors, like things that have been, uh, you know, made in bourbon baskets and they're supporting free speech episodes like this. Same as my other sponsors. They're into free speech. That's why they're involved in this. You got sheath underwear, promo code RYM. You get a uh, 20% off. And then of course, you'll create them home of the $60 kilos. Uh, now, before we get into the news, I've got a tragic tale I'd like to share with you guys, which is on Friday. Um, sad to report, I had a bad sandwich. I really, you know, I, I woke up late after the shed cast. I was too tired to make myself breakfast, and I just decided that's it. I'm going to go to the deli down the street. I'm missing New York City. It, like it, it, the Suburb food, it's like, it, it's so inconvenient. I'm just better off cooking. There aren't enough good deli options. I got one place that's solid for lunch but they're not open late and breakfast isn't great because they don't really do bagels. But anyways, I don't have to complain all about suburb sandwiches. You guys are living in the suburbs too. Maybe you've never really experienced New York City. That's New York City should just call itself the sandwich capital of the world because any hour of the day, you can get yourself something solid. You don't need to cook. I, I, I spend more money now cooking my own food, which isn't as good. This is no way to live. You know, get comedy in, in New York City reopened, not because I liked living there, nor did I like rent, but sandwiches, the sandwich situation in New York City was excellent. Anyways, I wake up in the morning and uh, I decide for some reason I'm craving uh, roast beef. I was going to get just, you know, roast beef on rye, lettuce, onion, tomato, mustard, simple sandwich. So I go there and I get myself my sandwich. I get myself uh, some oatmeal raisin cookies and a seltzer. And sometimes once I'm in the car, I like sitting in the car eating lunch as if I really earned it. Like as if I'm on the job site and I was working real hard all morning and now I finally get to my lunch. Because sometimes if I just come back to my apartment, it doesn't really feel like a ceremony. It doesn't feel like a good time. But if I pull up to you know a random like parking lot and I sit in there and I eat my sandwich, it feels like I've been working all morning and I really earned this thing. And then what I like to do is I'll line up something very specific, like a podcast that I want to listen to. And that's a nice time. I get to sit in my car, pretend like I'm working hard, like I'm just taking my simple first lunch break for the day. I eat, well, in this case, it was like kind of early lunch, late breakfast. Let's not get lost in these details. And I was hungry. I'm excited for the sandwich. I've got my whole setup going. The ritual's here. You know, I'm living for this moment. And then I open up my sandwich and she not like I, I at first I thought she put Russian dressing on it. And I don't normally eat, like I'm, I'm good with Russian dressing. It's OK. It, it's not the mustard I was looking for. 
But, you know, Russian dressing's acceptable, except it wasn't Russian dressing. It was, you know, Russian dressing should be ketchup and mayo, essentially. And, you know, there are variations on that. You can spice it up with some hot sauce. You can put other spices in it. It's good. I, I'm not coming out as anti-mayo. I get why people eat mayo. It's not my preferred condiment. I've kind of moved past it. I find it gives me some stinky farts. And what the fuck is mayo? It's just like this white goo. It's like a big old puddle of jizz that's been like turned into jello or something. I don't know. It just kind of creeps me out. What can I say? You age a little bit. You, you lose your hair and you start realizing life has consequences and everything makes you nervous. I hope that doesn't happen to you and you continue to eat creamy mayo and have delicious sandwiches for the rest of your life. I've mostly moved past Russian dressing. It's no longer my preferred condiment. Sure. Are there times when it's uh, acceptable? Are there times that if it ended up on my sandwich, I didn't order it? Am I kind of excited that it's there? All of those things are accurate and true. But in this particular case, I open it up and it's not just like traditional Russian dressing. It's like the Russian dressing you put on a salad. It's almost like Thousand Island dressing. And so I take the first bite. I try and ignore it take the second bite, still trying to ignore it. Then I try and like scrape it off. I take the third and I'm just like, ah, this is fucking disgusting, right? Now I got a problem where I can't go back to return, you know, three bites into one half a sandwich. Firstly, I don't even think I'd return a sandwich as it is. But now you got a double problem when you try, when you don't want to return a sandwich. One is now you can't go back to that place and get yourself breakfast because you're not going to go back and just order a second sandwich. Like you're the world's, maybe in New York city where there's so many people that you're just anonymous. I mean, these people just know me because they probably get four customers in the morning. I'm, I'm, I'm making their profit margins when I actually go there and get breakfast. So you're not, you don't want to be a fat fuck and they know you as t- second sandwich in the morning guy. And then you also, I like, I feel bad about them feeling bad for fucking up my sandwich. Maybe that's something I got to work on within myself. Uh, and so I had to go to another spot to get myself, you know, a worse or breakfast, which wasn't even what I was looking for. And so I leave it for you guys. What is your returning sandwich policy? I'm curious to know if they mess it up. Are you, are you going back to a place to return your order? That's where delivery business, uh, I mean, that's where, I, that's even worse. But you know, that's almost easier. It's almost easier if they mess up your delivery to call them and say they messed up the delivery and then that guy's got to deal with it and he doesn't get the second tip and you're being more of a dick. But when you actually went there to pick it up and then you come back to your, and then you got to go back there again, like even when I'm in a restaurant, I rarely send people back. And I'm curious, you guys tell me what, what's the etiquette? How do you guys handle the situation? Rob's newsroom at gmail.com. I'd actually like to start a service in general for, um, it'd be a service for non-confident people. It's almost like a therapist, but it's just, uh, like a, what's the etiquette. And they, they just answer quick, quick questions where every time you're in a life situation you can't tell if, uh, you're being a jerk for being upset about this. Or if it's the other person's fault, you just, it's like a consultant. What's the etiquette consultant? You call them up, they give you an answer, and then you hang up the phone, and then you can tell people to go fuck themselves with confidence because your etiquette consultant wouldn't it be great if the guy on the other end was like, um, uh, I mean, that would almost be the sketch of this. It's like a mafia guy, and you keep getting your ass kicked because, you know, he's telling you to tell everyone to go fuck themselves. All right, that's enough of this. Let's get into the news. First news story I wanted to highlight. I just thought that this one, was so hilariously backwards. There was a New York Post news story about beach volleyball players, and they're going out to Qatar, Quater. I don't know how that's pronounced. Q-A-T-A-R. I think it's Qatar. No, there's no way that's right. Uh, I should start. Maybe my etiquette consulting can also tell me how to actually read. Uh, so I guess this is how much of a dumb prude I am. But I was once wondering, I think I might have brought this up on this podcast. Perhaps I brought it up on the Shedcast. But 
I think beach volleyball is probably a difficult sport to play. And when you turn into it, it's almost incredible how every one of these chicks is like got a pretty sporty and amazingly good looking body. And they're all there with their bikinis. And I was always wondering, like, how come you never see a person with like a Babe Ruth type build? Who's a chick who's kind of like, maybe it's a sport where you got to kind of be real tall uh, in order to get over the net and spike it. But I would think like you might have some really strong chick with like a Rashiki type build who doesn't want to be out there in her thong. And it's weird to me that a requirement of playing a sport would like, I get it. Like, um, I mean, even if you're swimming, you're not really wearing, like if you go to the Olympics, I don't think they they're wearing thongs. I think they're probably wearing their bathing suits. Um, you know, there's porn on the internet, so I don't really have to watch these things. So I'm not totally up to date on this. So anyways, I would have thought that it's demoralizing or maybe not demoralizing, but if you were required to wear that as a uniform to play beach volleyball, that would seem backwards to me because perhaps you wouldn't want to have to wear that. Uh, so they're going out to Qatar. Let's just go with Qatar because that's clearly not the right way to pronounce that. So they're going out to Qatar, Qatar, They're going to go out to Qatar. And here were two quotes from the article. It's not about whether we have more or less clothing on. It's about the fact that we are not being allowed to wear our work clothes to do our job. Here was another quote. We are there to do our job, but are being prevented from wearing our work clothes. It's their work clothes. It's like a complete and total hazard to wear anything where their ass cheeks aren't exposed. Like if you're going to put these ladies on the job site without the proper equipment, you know, they work hard on their ass. And I don't care if I'm playing in front of Jesus Christ himself. You know, I've worked for these buns and I'm, I'm going to have them out there. It's almost like in a, in a biathlon, you'd be like, I don't get it. Why, why are you shooting? It's part of the sport. You know, if you want to be a part of the sport, you got to have those butt cheeks spread, you know, hanging out. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've gone to a, relig- a religious country, you know, you've worked for your right to show up to work in a thong and by God, you're going to do it. There's just something backwards. Like I would just think you go there. And so you wear uh, booty shorts instead. Booty shorts are erotic too. You know, you wear quarter sanctioned booty sports. On the same note, I'm not coming out as anti-thong, nor am I trying to say, I don't know, it gets confusing. It gets confusing what, what you're allowed to comment on. Uh, news article about Donald Trump in CNN, and uh, it was saying that now he's typically spending his mornings on nearby golf courses, making and taking calls from a golf cart that doubles as his mobile and self-driven office. Wouldn't it be great if he just did the entire presidency that way? I hope he runs again. He wins. And instead of going to the Oval Office, just his whole day, it, and we can get constant news coverage of it. It's just him taking calls from, from his golf cart. Uh, and, you know, and, and then that puts you, like, from a negotiating standpoint, that kind of puts you on the weak leg where he's able to answer his phone. He's like, you breaking up my game here, okay? I'm playing the best game. What do you need? Okay, okay. What do you need? <laughs> just... <laughs> or maybe like he only works the four hours while he's playing golf. I, and I've never been into golf, but it seems that I guess important decisions are made on the golf course. I don't know. I would think if I were to play golf, it would be more to chomp on the cigar, have beers. And I would want to play golf without having, I guess the competitive element. Cause I don't actually know how to play the sport. So just to kind of be there for the hang, Almost like the retarded kid. I'm basically describing I'd like to be, I don't know if you're allowed to use that, right? Look, goof, is that better? I, the dumb, your dumb cousin. I want to be the dumb cousin who just gets to tag along for the ride. And I'll, I, you know, I get to go like sit in the golf cart, like, wee, this is fun. And then you hit some balls, you drink some beers, you chomp on cigars. And, you know, you're, you're not actually on the scorecard because you don't know how to play the game.
Governor Cuomo, he's in the news now, in trouble again, not just for killing old people. That was Act 1. Now we're in Act 2. Apparently, he's harassing people sexually, sexual harassment. And uh, as far as sexual harassment goes, I mean, obviously, you shouldn't do it, but at least he's got good taste. You know, if you're, if you're going to make a stab at someone at work, this was the right lady. Not that you should do that. Obviously, don't sexually harass people, but you got to give people credit, at least that they're sexually harassing people that are like, I, I don't think you could say worth sexually harassing because now that's back in the creepy camp. But I guess I'm just saying kudos on having good taste, but don't sexually harass. Uh, and also, apparently the way he sexually harassed was he tried playing strip poker, which when does that ever work? I'd love to meet these people whose penises are so nice that they're like, if I just show it to this lady, she's going to want it. She might not like me as a, as a human person. She might not like the way I look with clothes on, but if I can just, does that work? Maybe, maybe I'm confused. Maybe I just think that if a lady got naked, I would be like, all right, well, you know, I, I guess we're doing this because I'm a man and that turns me on. And maybe women are the same way. Maybe if Cuomo got naked and even though he's 65 pushing 70, Maybe he, he still has a pretty nice body, maybe because of gravity. He's like one of these old guys in the locker room. That wiener's really just, you know, drooping down towards the floor, looks extra long. It's misleading. You think, hey, that's going to be big in a good time. But what you don't know is there's no way it's going north. There's no way he's getting that equipment working. That's the best it's going to look is when it's just pointing south because uh, gravity's kicked in because he's old and he's probably got long. You think he's got longer type? I bet he's got firm fucking tight balls. Like when you're a hard ass like that, I bet like they're big, but they're, I, I don't think they're droopy. I think he's probably got some, uh, some hard nuts, but this lady reported, reported back. And this is kind of the, I guess, vicious circle of sexual harassment, but let's just read this in October, 2017, Miss Boylan wrote the governor joked that they should play strip poker while on a flight back from an event in Western New York. The two were in close quarters sitting across from one another on the plane with a press aide and state trooper sitting nearby. Miss Boylan said she replied, uh, I guess this is after he said, hey, let's play strip poker. That's exactly what I was thinking in a sarcastic manner. She tried to play cool. The actual quote, I tried to play cool. She wrote in an essay. The problem with that is like just that little bit can give a guy hope for the next seven years. Like you can say point blank to him after that, like I'm not interested in you. This is sexual harassment. Please stop coming on to me and work with in the back. They're like, well, there was that one time, you know, I made that sexual harassment comment. I mean, I made that uh, poker comment. She didn't say no. I think she's pretty into it. I think if I can just talk her into seeing me naked, this will be in go mode. That's a tough situation. How much longer can Cuomo last between these claims of sexual harassment, uh, between killing old people, between this unbalanced budget, between New York City going to shit, which you might be able to blame de Blasio for that more than... Uh, Cuomo, because powerful people go down that that uh, Sheldon Silver guy, I think that was his name, who was in Senate, and he was uh, diverting all this stuff to his law firm, getting paid the big bucks. He, he got taken down, so it's possible to take these people down. I wonder if he's going to survive into the next term. If this guy is so powerful and you know his brother at CNN can cover his tracks and they can keep this dynasty going. Uh, or maybe it's the end and her, his daughter can finally go be with the, get banged out by that state trooper. Maybe that could be the happy ending. It'll be like the Shakespeare of our lives. All right. And now I'd like to play uh, a couple of YouTube videos, but before I do, uh, it's a reminder to go get yourself some sheath underwear. You might not be able to handle these videos that I'm about to play. If you're just wearing regular boxers right now and your stuff's just hanging out there in the wind, flopping all over the place, 
I don't know if you're going to be able to handle the intellectual wisdom and knowledge I'm about to bring to you when I break down some videos. But if you got sheath, you can separate your dick from your balls. Most comfortable underwear, especially if you're out there working out or you're doing like winter activities where you need something that's going to wick away the sweat. So go to sheathunderwear.com, promo code RYM, going to get yourself, I think it's 20% off. And then all's always Yo Kratom, home of the $60 kilo. At this point, you've heard about Kratom enough that, you know, just pick some up, pick up a kilo just because it's fun. Just put it on your shelf. It's a conversation starter. Maybe you'll dip it. Maybe you'll come a time where you'll just be happy if you're over the age of 21. Uh, you'll just be happy that you got that Kratom on hand. And if you're thinking about picking up some Kratom, no reason to get it from any place other than Yo Kratom, home of the $60 kilo. All right, now let's get into these uh, videos. The first is Merrick Garland. Uh, so he was Obama's pick to be in the Supreme Court. Got held up by Mitch McConnell. Never even got it voted on. Now he's making a comeback. He's taking Bill Barr's job. Well, it's not Bill Barr's job. But it's the post. It was the post uh, that Bill Barr was holding. I think it's the head AG. And so let's listen to Josh Hawley uh, asking Merrick Garland about you know some of his plans for while he's going to be in. Do you believe that illegal entry at America's border should remain a crime? Well, I haven't thought about uh, that question. Uh, uh, I just haven't thought about that question. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the president has uh, made clear that we are a country of, uh, with the borders and with the concern about national security. Um, I don't know of a proposal to uh, decriminalize but still make it uh, unlawful to enter. I just don't know the answer to that question. I haven't thought about it. Wouldn't you love to be able to take a job interview this way? Just go, listen, I don't have any experience with the requirements for this job, so I can't give you an answer on how I might handle any of the issues that come up because, you know, I just haven't really considered any of the requirements or things that might arise during this job. So as you start asking me the questions of how I might handle those situations, I, I really don't have an answer for you. All right. Now, here was another uh, senator who is grilling Merrick Garland. Um, and he's grilling him on what institutional racism is. Now, sadly, the guy who is grilling him just seems like a villainous racist, but you know, the looks can be deceiving. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he just looks like he's right out of a old stuff. So you telling me that we ain't going to be allowed to run our fields. All right, here, let's listen to a little bit. This is Senator John Kennedy. You and I are about the same age, I think. I think so. That's right, Senator. Uh, what is, when you refer to systemic racism, what is that? I think, I think it is um, plain to me that uh, there is uh, <coughs> uh, discrimination and uh, a widespread disparate treatment of communities of color and other ethnic minorities uh, in this country. They have um, a disproportionately lower uh, employment, disp uh, disproportionately lower home ownership rates, disproportionately uh, lower ability uh, to accumulate wealth. Dis so can I stop you? Because this five minutes goes so fast. I'm sorry. So you're basically saying there's a, there's a disparate impact. There's disparate impact, which um, in some cases is the consequence of um, uh, historical patterns. Sometimes uh, uh, is the consequence okay, of let me, let me uh, unconscious this. bias and some sure. kind of uh, 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 conscious. Uh, when you were at the Department of Justice, yes. 
Was the Department of Justice then systemically racist? I think each, we look for a pattern or practice in each institution. When you talk about a specific institution, you look for its pattern and practices. But, but you, how do you know what you know? In other words, you say an institution is systemically racist. I didn't say any particular institution. I, I know. I'm not, I'm not saying you did. All right. So here's where I'm going to start offering a little bit of commentary. How do we enact something in law or make laws around something that we don't have a clear definition for? And there is no clear standard by which to say this does or does not exist. Um, I, I don't know. Example on the top of my head is let's say I, I'm breathing fine in my room right now. If the Department of Health said that the oxygen standards are not good in this room, well, do you have a meter? Do you have something by which we can um, say that there aren't uh, there, the oxygen levels in here are low? I, I would just like if you're going to enact a law that we have to correct for something, there must be some sort of a way to gauge for it to say that we've we've fixed it or we haven't fixed it, and there must be some sort of a clear definition by which to say here's the thing that we need to correct for. Otherwise, how do you ever correct for it? Or how do you even, you know, establish that it exists? All right. And then one more video I want to play. I, I hope you guys are, I, I, I'm finding this fascinating because this is kind of the, I, I, I guess the biggest names in the business debating things that are now being brought into government to be actually like put into law. Uh, and it's interesting to me that we're enacting laws on things that are not just kind of flatly known. It's like wishy-washy gray information area that's being preached to us as if it's absolutes and we need to enact laws upon. Uh, and so on that note, here's another video from last week where Rand Paul is talking to Dr. Levine. Like surgical mutilation, hormonal interruption of puberty can permanently alter and prevent secondary sexual characteristics. The American College of Pediatricians reports that 80 to 95% of prepubertal children with gender dysphoria will experience resolution by late adolescence if not exposed to medical intervention and social affirmation. Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision as changing one's sex? Well, Senator, thank you for your interest in this question. Um, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I will look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars of the standards of care for transgender yeah. medicine. All right, so she doesn't answer the question. And here is, um, we're, 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 uh, we're going into deep waters here, but I've already said enough things that you're not allowed to have a career. So what, what does it matter? Um, I think what people put forward when it comes to being transgender is that you, you, you're born into the wrong body and you know that. And so you are able to correct for that and live a better life. And everyone should accept you for that, which is fine. If you're an adult and you're allowed to make any choice you want in life. And if that choice is going to make you happier, Go live your better and happier life. No one, you know, I, 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 who is arguing against that? Go live a better life. Go identify as the other sex. That's fine. The problem I think that is somewhat coming from that is that apparently there are some people who are miserable and because they're being told that it could be that they're miserable because they were born into the wrong gender 
they attach to that idea for a period of time and then they realize, oh, that's not actually solving my problem of uh, the way that I'm feeling miserable. Maybe that wasn't the solution. And Rand Paul is putting forward that I guess there are a lot of children who at one point in time, I guess, attached to this idea that they were of the opposite gender and then later grew out of uh, feeling that way. And so if at that you know young age they had been given uh, permanent things, they might not ever be able to, in other words, this is a conversation for how people can actually live out their best lives. And if uh, allowing children to make these decisions is actually a good idea, especially as it does not seem to be a black and white thing that people who I identify that that is a permanent thing. It seems that some people are, I, I guess, from what I'm hearing here, some people are miserable. And so they're attaching to the idea that they can correct for that misery um, by changing genders because they think that, but in other words, it's not a clear cut thing that everybody who I, uh, I guess at some point in time comes to the conclusion that they were born into the wrong gender seem to, seems to, I guess, stick with that idea or that they actually feel that way as much as they're trying to dodge some sort of a personal misery. Uh, and coming back to the same thing that if you're now chief doctor for the country, uh, addressing this problem Shouldn't there be some sort of a clear standard? Like, shouldn't it, like, shouldn't it be? And isn't there a way that you can we can run the data science on how many? Like, it seems like Rand Paul's got a pretty good number there to say that there's a lot of people that don't actually, um, I, I guess, identify with having been born into the wrong gender in a permanent way. And the other factor that's interesting about this, I mean, I, I believe Owen Benjamin really got in trouble for speaking out against, uh, um giving the, is that it's a conversation that we're trying to go, Hey, can we evaluate this to ensure that we're making the best decision for children? And the fact that when it seems to me like the science here is in gray area where there is not some sort of a clear cut standard, there should be at least the opening to have a conversation about whether or not that this is the best approach. Now to take a step back, I mean, if you're, if you're the parent of a child who this is your choice to be, to, 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 to make, this is not my choice to make for you. I don't think anyone should tell you that like, if there's a doctor who wants to prescribe this, there's a drug company that wants to make it. You want it like, I don't think that there should be a law that prevents you from, from doing that. Um, but perhaps it's not something that we want to encourage. And we can at least educate people to the fact that sometimes if, if it's true, if it is true that there are a lot of children who feel this way temporarily, and it would be by an objective standard, a mistake to give them medications that will make a permanent change that they won't be able to undo that they might not themselves want. We should at least be having that conversation and we should at least be allowed to have debate around it. And by the way, I saw, uh, because these questions are both at least reasonable questions and the fact that Dr. Levine just dodges it and says, I'm willing to come to your office and have a conversation is not I think a good look for, Hey, science is on my side, or I have uh, really good evidence or objective truth on my side. But even so Dr. Rand Paul was trashed by the, uh, the what's called the Washington, uh, the Washington post, like trash. They were saying, Hey, you know, he's a doctor, but he's an optometrist. And also here's everything that's wrong about him asking these questions. And I think it should at least be fair to have a conversation about whether or not this is a good idea for kids and also, once again, similar to what I was saying with the at least the way Merrick Garland's 
explaining systemic racism. This should not be gray area stuff. If we're going to enact laws around it, these things should be pretty clearly defined and backed up by evidence. The specific question was about minors. Let's be a little more specific since you evaded the question. Do you support the government intervening to override the parent's consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery of breasts and genitalia? You have said that you're willing to accelerate the protocols for street kids. I'm alarmed that poor kids with no parents who are homeless and distraught you would just go through this and allow that to happen to a minor. I, all right, this might be a, a, a bad joke to make, but as I'm listening to it, there's something a little bit humorous. If we're if we're talking about putting government resources into allowing someone to augment their body, right? If you're dealing with a homeless person, there's something really funny to me about investing a lot of money into changing their body for them to then just go back outside and be homeless. I would think if we're going to make a monetary investment into this person living a better life, maybe we should take care of the homeless and other problems first. And then that thing second, because like, you know, if you got to go to the bathroom outdoors, it, it doesn't matter what I mean, maybe that's just not this is a problem with these topics is I don't even know how I don't even know the logic behind it or in what way you're are or not allowed to poke fun, which it, it, you know, is not even something you should be concerned about. All right, let's just listen to a little more. I would hope that you would have compassion for Kira Bell, who's a 23-year-old girl who was confused with her identity. At 14, she read on the internet about something about transsexuals. She thought, well, maybe that's what I am. She ended up getting these puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. She had her breast amputated. But here's what ultimately she says now. And this is a very insightful from decision from someone who made a mistake, but was led to believe this was a good thing by the medical community. I made a brash decision as a teenager, as a lot of teenagers do, trying to find confidence and happiness, except now the rest of my life will be negatively affected, she said, adding that the medicalized gender transitioning was a very temporary, superficial fix for a very complex identity issue. What I'm alarmed at is that you're not willing to say absolutely minors shouldn't be making decisions to amputate their breast or to amputate their genitalia. For most of our history, we believe that minors don't have full rights and the parents need to be involved. So I'm alarmed that you won't say with certainty that minors should not have the ability to make the decision to take hormones that will affect them for the rest of their life. Will you make a more firm decision on whether or not minors should be involved in these decisions? Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. Uh, and if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field. It takes such a bold stance to just go, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm just going to repeat exactly what I'd said before and pretend like that was something that is uh, acceptable. Uh, wild. All right. That's enough of that. Other big news is uh, Biden. He's doing a review of supply chain. So I just want to read a quick little piece here from the Wall Street Journal. President Biden signed an executive order directing a broad review of supply chains for critical materials from semiconductors to pharmaceuticals and rare earth minerals with the aim of spurring domestic production while strengthening ties with allies. A chip shortage is squeezing automakers in the U.S. and worldwide, and Biden administration officials have been working with industry to free up supplies 
Cars use chips for numerous systems, including engine management and assisted driving. So basically, here's what's going on. We now have a we're having a conversation about there's some critical things that we need. Uh, this took place at the beginning of the coronavirus when we realized that we imported, I think, a lot of our pharmaceuticals from India um, or here. You know, we need semiconductors for a whole lot of shit and we're getting them from foreign countries. And this, the question is, uh, should we be in a situation where we're relying on foreign countries for critical materials? Uh, because if things go bad, that means we're not going to have these critical materials. But now, why, why do you think we're making these, these materials in other countries? I'm assuming because the production's cheaper over there. Why is the production cheaper? Probably because the labor, labor rates are different. So, uh, is government saying they're going to, you know, do away with this, uh, law for minimum wage laws that we'll be able to just make the stuff here. And we're not going to have to worry about the fact that it's cheaper to manufacture these things and that we're vulnerable to the fact, or is government going to just print more money and say, Hey, we're going to make up the difference so that you guys can do this. Or are they just going to nationalize certain critical industries and go, you know what? Free market. We can't let the free market create semiconductors. So from now on, we're nationalizing semiconductors and whatever else is important. Uh, which brings us also to our last topic, in which I've got a great guest for you, Matt Wallace, who's a expert in this field. But that conversation has now come up when it comes to uh, the infrastructure for, you know, I guess, uh, um, electricity, for electricity. Things went real bad down in Texas. And so now we're going to have a conversation about whether or not, you know, government needs to get more involved in critical infrastructure to make sure that you've got the electric electricity that you need. And before we have this conversation, last sponsor, got to plug them, run your mouth, coffee. And I use promo code. I got to check this. I'll put it in the notes. If you guys are uh, picking up some coffee, support run your mouth coffee because they're supporting the show. They've got great coffee. I drink their, uh, their bourbon one. Absolutely delicious. They've got unique flavors like that. And uh, they're supporting free speech stuff like this. So, you know, as opposed to uh, picking up wherever the hell you get your coffee beans, go to RYM coffee, pick up some coffee, use promo code RYM. I think that's going to get you 10% off. I should have looked that over before I did this, but I'll put it right in the show notes that you have that information. And now we've got an ex actual expert on this topic, uh, run your mouth super fan. He's the only guy who followed the 2020 summer porch tour. Uh, let's welcome Matt to the show. And, and Matt, how many, uh, how many porch tour places are you going to show up to this year once I line them up? You'll be in for the whole tour. I'll be there for everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> I like it. You're, you're OG run your mouth fan. And I, I leave it to you to build the, the shakedown street scene for, for run your mouth as we grow the porch tour. For sure. Absolutely. You can count on me. I don't know. Uh, I, I think I've already got, I think we're going to be doing a, a Boston show. I think we're going to be doing, I, I definitely hope to go back to both Max's and Tom's because that those were hella fun. Um, but I want to push it a little bit, a little bit further. I want to push it further. So we'll, we'll see what ends up happening, but I definitely want to do more. All right. Looking forward to see what, what you have in store. Yeah. All right. So let's get into uh, what's going on in Texas. Uh, I mean, you weren't your first signing on to the episode now, so you don't know what I just spoke about. And uh I actually haven't done that part of the episode yet. So theoretically, I will have spit. I will have spoken about um, that. There's a lot of different aspects of the economy where Biden is saying that these are crucial infrastructure, and so we need government to get involved. It's not. It's not okay. The free market can't handle it, and because this infrastructure is so crucial, um, we're going to start making government investments into it. 
So Texas, which just had an epic fail in its electric grid, and you know people, they're not used to the cold down there, so they're freaking out. They're freezing. Uh, some people are pointing to what's going on down there and saying this is proof of the failure of some of the green energy policies. And others are saying that it's actually because they opened up the uh, electrical grid, that they actually, I guess, winded down some of the, uh, uh, I guess, strict government controls over it. And that's what led to these failures. But you're an actual e expert in this field. So I need to tell people a little bit about your background and um, in your estimation, what actually went wrong in Texas. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so I used to work for the state regulating utilities in the state of New York. Um, now I'm in Philadelphia, I'm an engineer, and I work on uh, different ways to incorporate the most amount of solar we possibly can into the grid. Um, and, you know, I've been named uh, foremost innovator in this field by Ooh, uh, one of the trade sexy. magazines, which is pretty cool that happened last year. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the, there's a few aspects to that, right? Like we could think about the renewable energy, for example, like the wind power that um, a lot of articles were writing, um, you know, very critical of Texas's trend towards deploying a whole bunch of winds. And in fact, there's so much wind now in Texas that at any given time when the wind is blowing really hard, the wind turbines can power half of the load in Texas, which is pretty amazing. Um, but unfortunately, what ends up happening is you can't really rely on things like wind and solar. You have to rely on something that you can control. Um, and so you can add all the wind that you want. And that's great that it can offset, you know, power production during those moments in time. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for a reliable system, you have to have power plants that are reliable. So adding all that renewable energy, it's nice, but I would say unnecessary with regards to the stability of the grid. So then that brings us to, I think what, from what I've read has kind of gone wrong in Texas and also is what the distortions um, in the free market kind of are. So like, let's just say we, you had a total free market for energy. So I guess some people would come around and they'd build these wind things and they would say, maybe they'd even knock on your door and go, listen, I can deliver your electricity here and it's actually this green energy. Um, will you buy energy from me when it's available? And it's going to be a little bit of a premium, but you're you're making your contributions to the environment, or maybe it's so good that you're like, listen, um, you're contracting for when this is available. Fine, great. And then the other person would go, um, you're still going to need a contract for me because sometimes that system goes down, and when almost like an insurance policy, like yeah, go buy your wind energy every day, but you're going to have to have a contract with me because otherwise you might be screwed when there's that one storm, right? So what it sounds to me got distorted here is that the government's created some incentives for the green energy people that have kind of priced out the others so that when you end up in these disaster situations, um, the primary plants that are more reliable actually aren't there because they switch, because they basically priced them out of the market. So like they would be there, they'd be competitive, and then you'd have that reliable thing when you know these freak accidents occur. But since they price them out for daily use, then they're not there for when the freak accidents occur. Do I someone have that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, that's a good point with the incentives that the state, uh, federal and state governments have provided for green energy. Uh, a lot of the invest investment is going towards green energy resources. But, you know, as we saw during this ice storm, all of that was offline, right? You can rely on the wind or the solar. So at that point, the only thing that would have saved Texas would be more 
uh, more plants that are flexible with the different kinds of fuels that they can use and things like that. That said, those can tend to be more expensive. So really how energy is treated and how investment is driven in power production infrastructure is through these markets. So what used to happen for uh, the better part of 100 years is you have, you know, your regulated utility. So like in, in New York City, for example, that's Con Edison. And up until, you know, the 1990s, maybe early 2000s, the utilities also owned the power plants. And because the state grants utilities a monopoly franchise over the particular geographical area that they serve, um, there's no competition. So the state also then sets the rates that they charge because there's no market discovery for, for, for rates for the price of energy. And what had happened was um, the, the power production fleets end up getting bloated um, and there's a lot of plants that are really expensive to run and aren't really efficient um, and aren't really nimble, right? Because if like, let's say the price of natural gas goes down, like we saw, you know, in the 2000s and in 2010s, it would make sense for everybody to switch over to like natural gas power plants. Um, but if you're a regulated utility and all the power plants fall under this regulated regime, you have to ask for government permission to build a new power plant. Whereas now, since the 90s and 2000s, what happened was there was a general policy of deregulation across most of the country where the utilities were forced to sell all of their power plants um, because the utilities are regulated. The regulators said, hey, look, we can see that the power production fleet is suboptimal. Um, it's expensive. It's getting more expensive each year. We can see it's not very efficient. This isn't a good way to, to regulate this. So what, what we're going to do is the states are all going to set up energy markets, state sanctioned energy markets. We're going to make the regulated utilities sell all their power plants. And then these like uh, independent power producers that buy up the power plants, or build new power plants, they participate in these state sanctioned energy markets. And the way those like auctions are built that's what drives investment decisions into whether or not a company is going to try to build a new power plant or something like that. It's the incentives in that market. It's still just based off the fact that it, what you're describing to me sounds unnecessarily complicated. It sounds like there's probably licensing laws that are getting in the way of innovation or just pure capitalists coming along and going, Hey, I can do blank in Texas and get you guys your energy for cheaper. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Like, um, based on my experience in New York, I can tell you it's really hard to build a new power plant. And even though the price of gas has, I don't think collapsed is an exaggeration. The price of gas is really low. It's gone, essentially the drop in the price of natural gas has caused the price of power to be reduced by like 50% over the last 10 years or so. Which, by the way, because... I think it's important because this doesn't come up necessarily that often. And I do think my audience is actually more educated than me on most of these topics. Um, but that's when they're talking fracking. That's where that nat gas is coming from. And so what's so interesting about the nat gas is like, you know, I, I guess 10 years ago, we're getting most of our oil and we're buying it from Saudi or whatever. And so oil prices are where they were. And then suddenly we become a major exporter of nat gas and we've got this, basically we're competing with them and the entire price of energy comes down. Um, now what's crazy about energy prices coming down is like, you just got to think like, I don't know, let's just say theoretically, I, I make a $500 a week. That, that's my income. It's $500 a week. That's all I make, right? 
Um, so if my energy bill every month is a is uh, so five hundred dollars a week makes means I'm making two k a month, right? So let's just keep the math simple. Let's just say my energy bill is two hundred dollars, right? So ten percent of my income is going to energy costs, right? So it's not going to other stuff. But if energy costs comes down, all of a sudden I'm spending ten dollars a month on energy, right? So now I got another hundred ninety dollars that I can go do something. Now instead of me as an individual, look at me as like being a factory. So if you're a factory, energy costs are going to be like a really, uh, I guess, big part of the equation in terms of what you actually produce and the investments that you make. And so if all of a sudden the energy cost goes down, so maybe I can afford to buy more steel and I end up producing more goods because the entire thing is cheaper. So it's like energy costs coming down, unless you're very specifically the guy who just sells energy, you know, like that's it. You just sell oil for everybody else. That should be a springboard for kind of economic development. And so energy costs coming down is good. And so what you were just telling us is essentially the explosion of available natural gas shifted the entire energy market because now other energy producers were, had competition from that gas and basically had to drop their prices. Yes. No, that's exactly it. Yep. And you see a whole bunch of new, like really efficient natural gas power plants being built all around the country. Um, at this point, I think probably 50% of the power generation capacity of the state of Texas is natural gas based, which is amazing. Um, and, you know, while these markets are run by the state, they have done wonders compared to the previously so-called, you know, regulated power plant regime. Um, and now you can see significant drops in the price of energy, like the price of energy in Texas is among the most competitive in the nation because of that market. So if um just going back to the Texas example, if there were no incentives for green energy, would they have run into this problem? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the, the green energy thing is kind of more of a, more of an aside, right? Um, you know, like I said, a lot of investment went into green energy over the last couple of decades. And, you know, at least in terms of this ice storm, that investment sure would have been made better. Um, if it was in more reliable infrastructure, you know, some of some of the things that really caused the problems here was, you know, first you have the issue of the prices go up, right? And the reason why that happens is because the demand for natural gas, for example, spikes. This happens everywhere, you know, all over the country. It's it's fairly routine that during summer peak or during winter peak, um, you know, really cold snaps or really hot heat waves, the price of energy is going to go up by like a hundred times or a thousand times or something like that. Um, it's just the nature of the way the, the power plant fleet is. Um, but, but what really compounded the problem is it wasn't just high prices, but then also a lot of the infrastructure. So these are the power plants themselves, as well as the natural gas delivery infrastructure. So like the natural gas wells that are in Texas and the natural gas transmission infrastructure that moves the gas around, for example, to a power plant. Um, some critical facilities froze up, like literally froze up. Their instruments froze up, their controls froze up. So for example, the natural gas wells in Texas that would have been pulling gas out of the ground basically in real time to be burned, you know, within, you know, immediately. Um, some of that infrastructure froze up, which impaired the supply of gas to power plants. Um, in addition to that, you had basically all of the power plants running because of the unprecedented cold. Um, so you have an explosion in demands and at the same time, a constraint in supply. And so 
generally what would happen is under super extreme circumstances where there just simply is not enough power to go around, the utilities will implement what's called rolling blackouts. So essentially that Which, means- Which by the way, stated differently, just uh, in economic terms, rolling blackouts is essentially rationing that because they can't jack up the prices and then let basically people compete for what you want to pay for energy, they go, we're not allowed to uh, you know, increase the price. We got to ration the product. And so they basically turn off people's electricity. Now, when they do it, is it actually random or does it actually just go in a straight line or do rich people still get their energy and poor people don't? You know, that's, that's actually a bit of a contentious topic. Um, we've seen um, you know, kind of political fallout from rolling blackouts in the past where that exact accusation is made is, hey, look, how come the poor people don't, you know, they have their power shut off, but the rich people don't, right? Um, you know, I, I, there may be some of that, there may not be something to that, I'm not exactly sure. What I do know of it from an engineering aspect is what we'll do is like at a substation, there's maybe four. There's just some jackass just like flipping switches. <laughs> it's actually all automated. Um, there's there's computers that are all set up that recognize the condition where there isn't enough power. Um, and what they'll do is they'll say, okay, you know, uh, uh, there's the substation here and, and one circuit goes to the north, one circuit goes to the south, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to shut off the circuit to the north and just put all those people in the dark for like half an hour or an hour or something like that. And then what we'll do is we'll turn them back on and turn the people to the south off. And then that way the people in the north can warm up, the refrigerators can cool their food back down, heater can warm the home back up. Um, and then, you know, it basically just rotates and people continue to experience these periodic blackouts until the emergency is over. Right, and I guess it would be nicer just to, if. I guess they could just give you the heads up so that you would know like, Hey, four to 5 PM, not going to have power, uh, take a nap. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah download, download my porn beforehand. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, the way these things work is, um, you know, a lot of times these emergencies aren't really foreseen. Um, and it's spur of the moment decisions where there really isn't time to communicate. So let's talk about that. Cause I do think one of the arguments, uh, someone who is pro government would put forward is that, we're all really stupid. And so we need people who can make better decisions. And particularly one of the things I think people are bad at is let's just say saving or preparing for disaster situations. Now I look at government, I say, well, they're doing the worst job at preparing for disaster situations because they're always borrowing for the future to spend right now. So they're really not better than we are in terms of going, Hey, there might be a disaster down. Like, which is kind of funny about these disaster situations is people are like, well, I thought, government's like going to kind of mitigate some of the risk for these things. And then you realize like, no, they got no plan. There's no savings. There's nothing. Um, but so let's just look at it this way. If there was a free market for energy in Texas, uh, would this have been like prevented? Would there have been economic incentives in place that, you know, maybe some firms would offer you that insurance or maybe there'd be, you know, businesses that just run around with like generators or whatever the hell would be there that people would kind of have that backstop and not just feel like, oh, well, government's taking care of it. And then they find out, well, they're not. And like, they're not really that apologetic about it. Um, or I, I guess if government's in the business of like somewhat regulating these energy markets, should they actually be, you know, I guess taking more resources from the public and starting to make these um, investments into disaster scenarios? Because apparently, you know what I mean? Should there be like a national investment in some secondary energy grid that 
literally just runs coal in the event that, you know, the, the entire green energy grid goes down? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a complicated question um, because the energy, the energy markets, I wouldn't call them free markets, but they're certainly freer, right, than they historically have been. Um, so what we see happening in Texas is essentially a failure of the various markets that are part of this state-sanctioned energy market to procure really, really reliable infrastructure. Um, so essentially, um, you know, there's different auctions and it says, hey, look, if you want to sell your power in the state of Texas, you participate in this market and there's certain requirements that you as a power producer need to meet, right? You need to be able to turn on within so many seconds. You need to be able to react when we ask you to react, things like that. Um, what these markets didn't require was that the power plants need the ability to run during unprecedented colds and during huge ice storms, right? And so because no one was incentivized to build infrastructure that could withstand those freak weather conditions, it wasn't there. Um, and so, you know, in these, you know, 100-year storms or whatever it is, where you have these conditions that really nothing was designed for, you're, you're just going to have these problems. You know, if, if there was a freer but market... You can you can even argue, though, that um, in terms of the business investment, there's no reason to uh, make it. It's almost like if a volcano exploded and people's houses were burning down and we're like, well, why didn't you prepare your why didn't you make sure your house was fireproof for volcanic ash? And it's like, well, there hasn't been a volcano here for a thousand years. There's no reason why I would have thought that. So is this that much of a freak uh, storm occurrence that like the really you know, it's, it's really just not their fault. Like you're, we're not going to beat like nature. That's not happening. We're going to have elements of where nature kicks our ass. And like, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like, yeah, the, the same way. I don't know. People die. It's like crazy fucking shit happens. It's part of like living on this planet and we're not going to control for everything. You're no, you're absolutely right. I mean, like when a hurricane comes through and blows down every line, that's not much you can do. Right. Um, so if you look at, you know, there are a couple of aspects of the market, you know, if, if they were freer, maybe it would have made a difference. So, for example, the price of power is capped at $9,000 a megawatt hour in the state of Texas. Um, if, if the price of energy would have been allowed to raise a little bit higher, there may have been some additional capacity that could have been brought in. Some really, really expensive power plants could have ran or, you know, certain lines could have been used or something like that. But, you know, chances are, I really don't think that that would have made the difference. Um, I, I think really it's just the nature of, hey, this is this is a freak ice storm. If you look at it, it historically, um, 10 years ago, there was an ice storm, but it really wasn't even anywhere close to this order of magnitude. Yeah, there were some outages, but not like this. And then so, if you were to try to build a system that no one could afford it. And like you were saying earlier, cheap energy is the backbone of the economy, right? The cheap, like everything, absolutely everything requires energy. And if it's expensive, everything's more expensive and it's cheaper. Everything's more, you know, cheaper. And the, um, you know, the system, it, 
we try to optimize it, right? We try to make the right investments. It's gonna it's gonna give you the most bang for the buck. It's going to, yet at the same time it's gonna be affordable. It's gonna be pretty much reliable, um, but it's not gonna be bulletproof. All right, three more questions. Next one is uh, if you look at kind of you go see the movie The Jungle Book, and you know what makes uh, Mowgli so powerful is man's got fire. Like, so if you just kind of think of origin of man, you know, like the inventions that God is here, fire is like probably like the first one, pretty great, you know? And so just look at this. It's us against nature. And like, that's the first thing you go watch this fucking survival show. Someone's got to figure out how to make a fire so that they stay warm, right? That's like kind of the origin of us against. Then, you know, you just look at like in the war of us against nature, electricity is pretty good tool in terms of that. If it's warm outside, I can use my air conditioner. If it's cold, I can, I can play some heat. Now, you can also like look at envision in your head if we went to Mars tomorrow, not a very hospitable place, we're going to need a fuck ton of electricity to basically be living indoors. So now if you look at global warming, and let's just say global warming is a, is a real thing, and then let's maybe say that there are patterns to what happens on our planet in terms of weather, and maybe it's not entirely man-driven, or even if it is man-driven, it's in part because we like living indoors and being able to have air conditioner and basically change the weather. That That's a man choice, right? That I would rather be indoors uh, cold, I mean cool when it's hot outside or warm when it's cold outside. That's kind of a human preference, right? So the backbone by which we can kind of like being on Mars and living on a totally non-hospitable planet would be cheap energy or basically efficient energy that you can figure out how to have water supplies, maybe even have trees in store indoors, I- irrigation, all this stuff. So it's interesting if you start looking at like green energy investments, right? Is that perhaps there could be other risk factors pertaining to weather that we invest in like the, the, the green electricity, which is not as good as having infrastructure such as coal or whatever else that would actually allow us to beat, you know, crazy weather elements. Like let's say there was an ice age coming tomorrow or there was some solar flare problems. There were things that we weren't necessarily predicting right now because we're so concerned. Here's what I'm trying to say. Global warming. So we're concerned that the planet might change on us, right? So what's the tool that we would use? It would be cheaper electricity so that at least we can kind of be indoors and survive. Now let's say there's another thing that's not global warming that's a problem well, then we really better be investing in good energy infrastructure so that if there's some other thing, we'll be able to beat it. So there's like kind of an irony to the green energy investment and that if we're concerned about the world becoming less uh, hospitable for people, well, then we better be investing in, you know, having a lot of energy available so that we can overcome that challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a really great, um, website energytalkingpoints.com and that's hosted by Alex Alex Epstein. Uh, he's been uh, you know on Tom Woods show and stuff like that. Um, and he has a great quote and uh, I'm gonna paraphrase it here, but basically he says, look, the climate is dangerous, right? It's, it's always been dangerous. And the ability to have energy for you know heating and cooking and and being warm, and safe and stuff like that and, and having light. Um, that's really important. And, and that's what makes the difference, right? That if you're just depending on the climate to be okay, you're dead. Um, but if you're able to actually utilize energy efficiently, uh, a lot of energy, then you'll be all right. Um, so, you know, I see the arguments that the green energy advocates have. 
it's like, look, you know, um, we believe that having greener energy is going to make the climate safer than it otherwise would be. And therefore, we need to invest in those types of resources. However, someone like Alex Epstein would argue the climate's dangerous, right? It's always going to be dangerous. It's dangerous now. It's going to be dangerous in the future. And if you're just relying on the climate being all right, you're, you're not going to make it. Um, so how about we focus on having abundant, inexpensive energy? And that's what's going to make the difference in terms of, you know, whether or not you're going to be safe, whether or not you're going to be warm. And if you look at, you know, the billions of people that struggle from not having enough energy, um, like in India or whatever it is, the advent of, you know, cheap electricity that they can use allows them to very quickly um, essentially multiply their standard of living. Uh, and the quality of life there. And really the best way to do that is through, you know, um, fossil fuels, someone like Alex Epstein would argue. Um, and indeed we see that the, the proliferation of coal and other things like that throughout the third world have drastically improved the quality of life for these people. And, you know, it, it's not the sole reason, but it's certainly related if you look at the percentage of people around the world that are in extreme poverty, right, where they're at the brink of starvation, hands to mouth type of subsistence, um, where they, where a reliable low cost electricity is introduced, um, their standard of living has gone way up. In fact, we've seen something like a 50% reduction in extreme poverty or even more um, just in the last you know, couple of decades. All right. And so on that note, because I, I didn't realize that you were in um, solar, I like I knew that you worked on energy grids because you had told me that. Um, and I, I don't remember. Oh, yeah. It came up uh, in regards to I was saying that California is a heavily regulated market and no one ever like really points fingers at the government to go um, like you guys are at fault here. There's a lot of deaths and forest fires and it's because you're like you're not allowing for a free market. Uh, sorry. Oh, OK. I thought for a second I froze on you there. Um, so the question I was going to ask for you, so all the green energy investments, uh, in your opinion, as a guy who I guess is working in solar, which I'm curious to know if that's, is that just a moneymaker, uh, or do you like, I, I, I don't know, is it a, all right, I, let me, let me come to one focus question is all the green energy initiatives getting in the way of us just having an abundance of good energy so that we're kind of well prepared for changes in the climate. I, you know, I think that there's something to that point, right? Like if you look at the subsidies uh, and there's subsidies all around, right? Um, the green folks would argue that there's subsidies for fossil plants. The fossil folks argue that there's subsidies for renewables. But um, if you look at the rise of renewable energy, it is driven, um, I would say primarily by subsidies. And um, sorry, the question one more time. Yeah, so I was asking if um, the subsidies in green energy are actually weakening our ability to have like a abundant and good energy infrastructure that if there was some radical climate event, we'd be better prepared than, you know, us putting resources kind of into wind and solar. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, so basically, you know, you have, uh, and California is a really good example. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, what happens in, just for example, in California, 
is you have um, the power plants and they participate in California's energy market. And, and that's very similar to the energy markets all over, all over the country. And so what happens is in these energy markets, they say, okay, uh, we need this much power in these places at these times. Um, let's figure out which power plants are going to run, which transmission lines are going to carry that power. Let's, we have an algorithm that figures out the most efficient way to do it all. And then that's, that's how we run the system. Um, however, because of certain mandates, right? So you have, you have the um, subsidies that uh, are essentially fueling the investment in solar in California. Um, and then at the same time, you have mandates. Like for example, there's a new building code in California that says every new building has to have solar on its roof or whatever, something like that. Um, and you have mandates that say, hey, look, if a customer is producing solar and they're trying to export that power onto the grid because they're not using it all, utilities have to take it. And not only do they have to take it, but they have to buy it at the subsidized rate. Uh, it's called that energy metering rate. Um, and so what that ends up happening, or what that ends up causing, is if you look at what happens in the energy market, um, like during the summer, for example, is uh, you have all of these power plants that have to run in order to reliably provide electricity. Because you know, as of you know, 5 or 6 p.m., um, demand is really high. At that point, all of the solar has more completely shut off. Um, and then at that point, you just have to rely on the solar plants and, or I'm sorry, on the fossil plants or nuclear plants that are available. Um, however, because of these mandates in the middle of the day, when solar production is really high and demand is actually really low because, you know, people are at work, they're not at home, they're not, you know, using their stove and whatever. Um, it's just the patterns of usage throughout the state. What happens is there's a glut of power. So essentially all of the power plants that can, uh, they ramp down their production because solar production is really high. Um, and even though at that point, the price of energy is like really, really, really low, all the utilities are forced to pay these subsidized rates for the solar energy that they don't actually need. And in fact, what happens is certain power plants can't turn down. They're just too big. The, the machines have too much energy. Uh, just to explain, I think it's they're forced to buy the excess energy back. So like if you've got a solar panel on the top of your house and it's creating energy. So like usually, like imagine if I came to the market with oranges and no one wants to buy oranges. Well, I don't get to sell any oranges. When it comes to electricity, if I throw a solar panel on the top of my roof and I'm not using all of it, the electric grid is actually, I, I believe, just correct me if I'm wrong, they're actually forced to buy whatever electricity I'm not using. And what you're saying is that there are some cases where not like, not, they don't just not need that energy. They're creating their, it, it's like almost like they have too many oranges. Like they're a fucking orange stand. They literally have no room for your oranges and they're forced to purchase your oranges at a premium. Like, yeah, that's going to ruin their business. No, exactly. And what ends up happening is um, the, the power plants that are like unable to, you know, reduce their output or whatever. Um, you know, they're they're putting power into the grid. All of the solar is putting power into the grid. And by law, you're not allowed to to touch that that solar production. You have to accept it. You have to pay that premium. What ends up happening is the price of energy on that market goes negative. So the power plants actually have to pay because they're not able to stop spinning because they're going to have to be fully ramped up at 6 p.m right to serve the load so in the middle of the day they can't just shut off for a couple of hours um 
So what ends up happening is the price of energy goes negative in the middle of the day because of the glut of solar. And so Californians end up paying people in Oregon and Washington and Nevada to take, to take their the power. energy. They're literally paying people to take it. Yet at the same time, utilities are forced to pay a premium for the solar energy that's being produced. In, in but now, moment. wouldn't I would think that the end result of that is that, okay, I would just think I'm an energy plant, right? And so prior to 6 p.m., I have to spend money on other people's excess energy. And the only reason I'm spending that money is that at 6 p.m., I get to open up my store and I get to actually start serving energy because you need it. My price is going to be higher now because I've got to offset the fact that I basically had to go buy up. Like, so I would just think that that would create a the overall there is that your average person is probably spending more money on energy. And now here's what's interesting. Poor people or renters are probably the ones that are purchasing that energy, whereas your wealthy people are putting up like these uh, solar things. You're probably extracting more money from poor people on the backs of wealthier people. You're absolutely right. You know, the effect is really twofold, right? So um, one is in terms of the cost of the generation fleet, right? So you not only have to have a, like a fossil and nuclear-based generation fleet, um, but then you also have like a, a complementary renewable generation fleet. Um, and so you're paying for, you know, essentially double the capacity that you otherwise would. And then on top of that, now you're also paying for the mandates that say, hey, look, solar sold at a premium. Uh, that money's got to come from somewhere. It's going to come from the price of energy, things like that. All right. So uh, I know I said three more questions, but you, you're opening up more questions. So, but yeah, I think these are my last two. Is there any possibility, let's just play devil's advocate here, that the investment works? So there wasn't enough of a demand for green energy. Government came in and they actually, you know, spent the money to incentivize people to invest in those things. It achieves economy of scale. And 10 years from now, we end up with uh, efficient green energy that competes with fossil fuels that would not have existed outside of, you know, government making that, that, that those funds available. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, I think it's only a matter of time before the technology is advanced enough before it really does make sense for you to put on, you know, um, Elon Musk's new solar roof tiles or whatever it is um, without subsidies for probably the majority of places where you see solar deployed, um, you know, it wasn't really worth it. Um, but as technology advances, the, the price of these, um, you know, solar production infrastructure continues to go down. And then what's really important is the price of batteries that can be used to like stabilize the production of power from these intermittent resources is also going down. But do you think that it would have happened without, in my opinion, it would. And I think the best chapter on this is Stockman's got a book about all the Obama initiatives and green energy and how it all went to waste and fraud. And there were some companies that were funded through the private market that actually did okay during the same time period. Um, I would guess, and you know what, I'll, I'll just put forward the argument. It, it's twofold. One is uh, technology generally gets better. And so if there's really demand for it, like I, I think science is really smart. And so if we got to a point where fossil fuels were like really a problem, um, I think we'd figure it out. I also think if there's so much people, there's so many people that concerned about fucking, you know, the, the climate, I would think you could sell them, Hey, I'm going to sell your energy, but it's totally green efficient, but it's going to cost you 10 cents more. 
and, you know, let them put their money where their mouth is that if they're actually that concerned about it, you know, so like, we don't need government to solve that one. You can spend 10 cents more on your energy. And if you can convince enough of your friends about it, like that, that's problem solved right there. Um, so I just want to like really hone down on the question and you work in the field, uh, absent of the government's investments or incentives, do you think the technology would, I, I guess the investment would be made and we'd reach the economies of scale? Or do you actually think that like, it's because, and it's fine if it is, it could be an interesting case study where government did something right. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we want them involved in every industry, but you're actually working in the field. Do you, do you see that perhaps the return on investment here is worthwhile, that government created incentives and we reach economies of scale and we end up with a better, more renewable energy source? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, that book, The Great Deformation by Stockman is really good. I definitely highly recommend it. I think that's the one you're referring to. Um, you know, I think that these subsidies, you know, have helped drive investment in the solar and energy storage industries and things like that. And in that regard, it's accelerated their, their advancement in terms of how inexpensive they are, how useful they are, how flexible they are, things like that. Um, I think eventually we would have gotten there, right? I don't think we needed to dump, you know, billions and billions of dollars in pulling all of that demand forward. Um, because basically right now, in terms of being really useful to the average homeowner, um, that technology is immature in the sense that it's really expensive to get the really high quality stuff. So when, what you end up doing is just throwing um, very like simple solar panels up on your roof they're not augmented by batteries. Um, they don't really contribute to the reliability of the grid. And in fact, in some circumstances can um, be a destabilizing element. Like for example, in places like Hawaii, um, the intermittency of the vast amount of solar that's been deployed there um, can cause uh, stability problems on the grid, for example. So what I think we would have seen is if you look at the price of energy from your utility, it goes up every single year. Um, I think really that's that's mostly because of the nature of it being a government regulated entity with a monopoly franchise where competition is illegal. But with that aside, just looking at the historical price of power from your utility, it goes up every single year. So eventually these technologies like solar and storage are gonna make sense, right? In places like New York City, for example, um, if you're able to offset just a small percentage of your usage, right? Um, on January 15th at 4 p.m., when when you're using the most power you've ever used before because it's really hot, if you're able to just take the edge off of your demand and reduce it by a little bit, you can save a ton of money on your electric bills. Oh, because that's so interesting because usually I like, I'm not consuming energy where I see, hey, I'm during this hour, it's really expensive. But look at it this, look at it the way that would fuck over the energy companies. If I just had a meter and it told me like, you know, energy's 10, 10x its normal cost right now, I'll go, oh, let me, this is the hour I'm going to run my solar power. And then if enough people do that, well, then the energy cost is going to come down because there's less demand for it. That's really interesting that basically we could be self-reliant just during the periods where, and, and by the way, I'm sure there's a box that can be created that automates that where it just tells me when energy hits blank rate, pull it from my grid. When it's below that, pull it from their grid. And then what you can even be doing, I would think, 
the next step would be, let me get my batteries on the top of my house. And when energy is really cheap, let's fill up these batteries, almost like a, almost like a gas tank where if, you know, you told me that the gas across the street was 10 cents right now, I fill up my gas tanks. I go, holy shit, it's cheaper. So in other words, like if at three in the morning, you know, the energy prices, and then all of a sudden you would actually end up with a more stable grid with pricing, like, you know, across the board, because you wouldn't have those peaks because essentially people are storing their own energy. Absolutely. Yeah. And in, and in many cases, um, that's already cost effective, right? Like I mentioned batteries and, you know, there's some problems with batteries in New York City because of the density. They don't want the lithium ion batteries put into buildings because they're hard to put out if there's a fire and stuff like that. But there's other, you know, much simpler, much safer solutions that you can use for energy storage. So like in New York City today, there's a number of you know commercial buildings that have um Essentially, it's an ice making facility on their roof or in their basement or something where at night when energy is really cheap, they make a giant block of ice. And then at 4 p.m. during a heat wave, instead of running their compressors um, for cooling in the building, uh, they just divert the, the, the flow of coolant um, from the compressors into the block of ice. And they just melt that block of ice for a few hours to cool the building. Uh, and then in that way, they're able to alleviate their demand when the grid is really stressed out. And they save a ton of money. And I think that's that so would, interesting. Absolutely. And I think we would see very similar technologies happen at the residential level eventually, right? Where eventually it's going to make sense where, hey, everybody on your block, um, you know, your, 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 your demand for energy has gone up over the years as you, you know, have more and more electronic devices or electric vehicles or, you know, whatever it is. It's to the point now where we're going to have to upgrade the substation. And in a place like New York City, that substation upgrade might cost like a billion dollars because you have to buy really expensive land and put really sophisticated equipment in there and stuff like that. Um, so what you could do instead is say, hey, okay, on this block, let's all go have these on a battery or something like that that can offset our demand during just those few hours a year where we're stressing the grid out to the point where they're going to have to upgrade the substation. And if we can just alleviate that load, we avoid the grid upgrade, we all save a whole bunch of money, and the solution was perfectly economical. And I think we're just going to see more and more of that as these technologies develop. All right. So last question, and it's because we can't have a full talk about energy and how to make a change here without getting into nuclear. Now, I've mentioned this on the podcast before because I've just I remember years ago just reading a speech about how we basically regulated nuclear out of existence. But yet all of the mil the military's like most advanced and most important vehicles, such as the nuclear submarines, are being run off nuclear technology. So there is compact safe nuclear technology and from what i understand uh you got to realize like i mean how long ago was the russian meltdown or even the Jap japan thing of technology getting better i've heard that there are i guess newer stations that be built that don't even have uh the capacity for meltdowns or i've also heard that like as opposed to needing like that one giant nuclear power plant you can almost have like the equivalent of generators where it's like i could just be running my house off nuclear now i don't know this is not a subject I've researched a whole lot, but I've definitely taken interest in the fact that because nuclear is carbon neutral. So if you're really concerned about, you know, that carbon is heating our planet, nuclear might be the best option for combating that. But I, I, I am assuming it's just the lobbyists and the industries and who's got power. And I, I guess maybe the Koch brothers, for as much as people say they do, maybe they don't really have the power. And I don't even understand 
how much of their money is in nuclear. I just know that those two names kind of go together, but I'll hand it back to you um, to just give us your opinion as you work in this field to, you know, what, like where could nuclear be if it was allowed to exist? How do they lose that fight? Or is this just, you know, internet talking points that aren't, you know, that are not true and nuclear would not be a good energy, you know, resource for us? I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, nuclear is really, really exciting. And the history of it is just fascinating. So if you look at, um, you know, in the World War II era, when these technologies were being developed, um, as soon as, you know, we as a society um, got to the point where we could harness nuclear energy for civilian energy production. We started killing each other with it right away. <laughs> we did. I think that was step one was, was let's, let's try to kill each other first and then let's see if we can use it to make each other better. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but essentially what happened is the, um, the federal government um, created the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and they said, hey, look, okay, we... Uh, you know, this is going to be a new industry, the civilian production of energy using nuclear fuels. Um, and because we have this demand to make, you know, thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons, um, we are going to regulate the industry such that the types of power plants that are going to be built and the types of nuclear fuels that they use, the waste products can be given to the military industrial complex and turned into nuclear weapons. And because it's so important that we have as many nukes as we possibly can, those are the only power plants we're going to allow to be built in the country. Um, and really not a whole lot has changed in terms of the regulatory environment for nuclear power plants in the United States. So you're still using these old designs and when these new like molten salt reactors, which are, you know, these tiny nuclear power plants that you could drop in every city or every neighborhood, you could bury them. There's no risk of melting down, all that kind of stuff. Um, you need the federal government to essentially bless the design and allow people to build those types of power plants. Um, unfortunately, they're not at this point where they're allowing such plants to be built. And then further, um, you know, through various, we'll just say propaganda, um, much of society or, or many of the people in society believe that nuclear power is evil and is going to kill everybody. And that's the only talking points that they've heard. Um, so when someone like me or you says, hey, look, you know, there really is safe nuclear technologies that could be cost effective with governments getting in the way, they would say, hey, look, without government, you know, we have nuclear power plants melting down everywhere and that's super dangerous and not in my backyard. Um, and so I think it's twofold, right? You need to, you need to not only um, update the regulations or let's just get rid of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission altogether, um, but then also, you know, we need to educate people on, hey, look, uh, these fuels really could bring about um, a future where energy is abundant and is low cost and is, you know, pollution free. All right. Real talk. Last question. Within the nuclear. So if I were looking at the nuclear playing field and I go, you know what? I think this is still the best source of energy on our planet. And even if now nobody's willing to touch it at some point, it's going to circle back around and we're going to need it. And you're only going to be like, it's like ignoring gold in the ground. It's like, we've got the solution here. And for whatever reason, nobody wants it now, but that's just going to change at some point. 
where do I put my money so that when people decide on nuclear, like who who's kind of in the front of like the tiny reactor thing right now? Like what, 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 in your estimation, maybe you're not allowed to answer this. Maybe you work in the field. So I don't know, but who do you think is, uh, or I, if you're not allowed to answer it from an investment standpoint, who are just some of the publicly available, in your opinion, leaders of this field that, you know, for the betterment of mankind, you might want to just pay attention to, or you can tell it to us as investment advice. I don't know what your, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't think that there's, um, there's a front runner necessarily. Um, you know, I was looking at, um, Department of Energy grants that are that are out there, and I know that there's at least a couple of, um, I guess we'll call them a pilot project where you know they're experimenting with this new technology under the you know supervision of the government and with the blessing of the Department of Energy and its grant money. Um, but in terms of a company that's like chomping at the bit to start dropping these things in the ground, um, I don't think there is one. There you go. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, sometimes people want to throw out their Twitter or ways that people, other fans can get in touch with them. Uh, other times people want to come on the show and it's audio only. So they don't want it any way that it can get back to them so that they can go about their day jobs and not be concerned about other things that I've said on the show. Uh, so I leave that to you, but if you want to throw it away, if not people come on summer porch store, if you want to talk summer energy, you know, Matt's going to be out in the parking lot, you know, with his solar things, cooking up burgers or whatever. I don't know. But he, he's he's in charge of the shakedown street scene. And so you got to show up to one of the live events if you want to hang out with Matt. But I don't know if you want to throw something For out, sure. you can. If not, no worries. Definitely come out to the live events. Uh, follow me as I follow the summer Porsche tour this year. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. It's a really good time. Um, you know, you're going to see a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Robbie, the fire fans, a bunch of part of the problem fans, um, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of good folks. Um, you know, the one thing that I would plug is, uh, my new energy blog as the meter turns.net. Uh, you know, it's relatively new, this post here with these notes, that's going to be my first post, but, um, I've been doing research on, you know, the history of utility regulation. And I'm going to be putting out a bunch of uh, what I believe is really interesting work on that. Uh, I'm going to start by digesting Murray Rothbard's work on this uh, from his book, The Progressive Era, Tom DiLorenzo's essay, The Myth of the Natural Monopoly, which is extremely controversial in my field. Um, and then I'm going to try to build on the shoulders of giants here. Um, so please check out my blog, asthemeterturns.net. And if I could, I'd also like to plug the Mises Caucus. Um, so I am a member of the Libertarian Mises Caucus, Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I am an organizer in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and if you have been following that at all, if you're involved, if you're interested in making the Libertarian Party Libertarian again, then please go to uh, the Mises Caucus website, um, MisesCaucus.com, I believe. Let me just check here. Um, LPMisesCaucus.com. Uh, and when you go there, there's going to be a form where you can drop in your information, your name and your phone number. Um, if you're interested at all in helping out the Liberty Movement in that way, um, please sign up and one of the Mises Caucus state organizers will get back to you right away and we can tell you how you can help. So please check that I got to talk to Mike Heist because I'd actually love to do a like a phone drive type thing. If there was like a, I, I'd love to like either spend a day answering phones or make an outbound calls to people in the party. I got to talk to him, but we could probably 
put together something fun with that. Maybe even just a fundraiser. I'll put on like suit suspenders and go like, you know, 80 stockbroker aggressive and call call people up for money. I don't know. I'll talk to them. We'll do something fun. Also, uh, someone in Connecticut just hit me up that they're doing an event uh, at a brewery. It's a drive for you, but maybe I'll let you know if I'm going. Yeah, for sure. I would definitely go. Let me know. All right, dude, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for the invite. Take care.